I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 20 of Caro Pop. Over the past couple of years, I've gone on a vinyl buying kick and visited online communities where there's much discussion about the quality of album pressings. I've appreciated such guidance because so many versions of albums have become available that it's hard to know which ones to buy. While reading about these topics, I've become familiar with names such as Mastering Engineer's Bernie Grunman, a previous Carol Pop guest, and Kevin Gray, who is featured in this episode. On a thread about, say, T-Rex's Electric Warrior, there will be a comment about how the pressing that Kevin Gray mastered from the original analog tapes was the one to get. An assessment of a recent Aretha Franklin reissue went like this, another flat, quiet, great-sounding Kevin Gray record. Kevin Gray says he was the country's youngest mastering engineer when he began his work in 1972 at Artisan Sound Recorders in Hollywood. He was mastering albums by the Beach Boys and the Grateful Dead. Freddie Hubbard and Donald Byrd. Billy Joel and ELO. He went on to run MCA's mastering department and worked on albums by The Who and others. For a long stretch, he mastered recordings for CDs before the industry shifted again and he went back to working mostly with vinyl. He spoke with me from Coherent Audio, the facility he opened in 2010 in Los Angeles's San Fernando Valley. By the way, that's Coherent with an A. He built all of his own equipment to get the sounds he wants. Recently, he also converted the house's living room into a recording studio modeled on the Hackensack, New Jersey home studio that gave birth to many legendary Blue Note and prestige jazz recordings. Kevin Gray talks about that project, as well as the work he does every day and how he got there. He answers questions such as, is there a telltale difference between one of his masters and one done by a peer? Does a recording have to be AAA, that is recorded, mixed, and mastered in analog with no digital steps for an optimal pressing? How important is it to work with the original master recording? What's a better source, a high resolution digital file or a second or third generation analog tape? How long does it take him to master an album? What does he think of the half-speed mastering technique used by Mobile Fidelity and the current Abbey Road series, among others? Does he agree with Bernie Grunman that music recorded onto quarter-inch tape sounds better than music recorded onto half-inch tape? Does he share Bernie Grunman's respect for CDs? Kevin Gray also discusses his work on projects such as the 50th anniversary, The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society box set, and a 45 RPM version of Fleetwood Mac's Rumors on which he collaborated with engineer Steve Hoffman but wasn't thrilled with the end result. He recalls how he tried to make the 30th anniversary vinyl edition of Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon the best sounding version yet. We also talk about his work on the recent John Prine reissues and the fact that Vinyl Me Please, with which he has worked, put out a separate version of Prine's self-titled debut. How does Kevin Gray listen to music at home? What gear does he use? How does he protect his ears? There's much to hear in this carol pop conversation with Kevin Gray. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate uh, having you on. My pleasure. Where did you grow up? Here in Southern California. And what got you passionate about music and specifically how it sounds? <laughs> my parents bought me my first record player when I was five and, and I was hooked. Um, and, and they would take me to, you know, the the department stores that had a vinyl section and I would buy records, you know, and then later on started haunting the, the record stores. And so, you know, I've loved vinyl and, and music since I was a young kid. And um, what was, what were those albums? What was the first album you bought? And what was the first album you got really crazy about? <laughs> okay. Um, back in the late fifties, kind of about the time that stereo really started happening, there was a bullfight music craze. <laughs> there was a movie that I was a huge fan of called Around the World in 80 Days, and it had a bullfight scene, and they used right. some bullfight music in that. I think that might have had something to do with it, because it was just around the same time. Uh, Audio Fidelity, which was uh, one of the early um, audiophile labels, we'd call them today, and one of the first, I think, the first label to put out a stereo record. Um, they put out a record called The Brave Bulls, and then there was a volume two, volume three, volume four, and I have volume one, and it was the first record. I went in with my parents. I wanted to buy it. 
because I had heard it, I don't know, on the radio or somewhere. And of all things, that was the first record I bought. But this pushed you in a direction of the recording part of it, as opposed to wanting to make bullfighting music yourself <laughs> or that sort <laughs> yeah, of thing. Yeah, I, um, I'm a, a kind of a, know, what would you call it? An armchair musician. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't really consider that I play any instrument. I, I kind of noodle on everything and play nothing. You know, I noodle on guitar a bit and bass uh, and on drums. Um, not, you know, I can pick out a song by ear, note by note on the piano, but I don't really play piano, but I'm a listener. I mean, I just love listening to recordings and I have since I was a kid. Were there other recordings where you heard them and just sound wise, you were just kind of knocked out? Well, yeah, that's kind of an interesting story in itself. You know, I, I kind of always had my little Sears silver tone and my parents had their Magnavox, neither of which were very high fidelity. And in 1966, I moved into a neighborhood where my next door neighbor had a component stereo system with, you know, JBL studio monitors and Macintosh uh, amplification and a Thorin's turntable. And I took some of my records over to his house and played them on his system. And I was knocked out. I'm hearing stuff on the on the record that I never knew was there. I saw I saw a quote from you where you refer to 1954 to 1964 as the golden age of recorded sound. Um, which is interesting to me because because it's that's a time where it's because it's before there were a lot of overdubs, I would guess. And oh, yeah, cause certainly. Because certainly, you know, 64 is when the Beatles are on Ed Sullivan. And, you know, you could go from 64 to 69 of just their career and how complex and how much more was on each tape Absolutely. and someone considered a lot of those things advancements like the bass sound on revolver and and mm -hmm. all the layering on sergeant pepper but on the other hand there's probably a clarity to those earlier records that you, maybe you didn't have later yeah I, I think that's very true um you know by 64 we were only just getting into four track most things were two or three track um and yeah the, the fewer tracks really usually the better it it sounded. And like you say, it was a, a single pass thing. You know, when they went to three track, it was so they could overdub vocals. But uh, an interesting thing about that is I did this whole uh, uh, Nat King Cole box set from the three track masters. And there wasn't, I think on every single one of Nat, uh, Nat King Cole's songs, there was only one that had an overdub vocal. And the way you could tell was if you pu push the vocal track up by itself, that's all you heard on all of the mm -hmm. other ones. When you pushed up the vocal track, you can hear the bleed from the orchestra. So, right. You know, it's live in general from albums that are pressed from that golden era. If you, what are you better off? If you could have like a pristine copy of one of those records, or you could have one <laughs> that you take into your mastering studio and you do all of your magic on it. And it's pressed at a really great plant now, which is going to sound better that pristine original or the new one. I think the equipment, or at least my equipment has advanced to the point that I think I can probably make it sound a little bit better than the original release. Um, but sometimes the early ones are, are, are hard to beat. It's true. Right. Especially in that era. In that, you know, like late fifties, early sixties, are you listening mostly to jazz, rock and roll, just anything? Um, probably the pop music of the time, you know, the Frankie Avalon's and the, you know, uh, can't even think of all the artists, but you know, the, the, the sort of the bubblegum music of the late fifties. Um, yeah. Sort of the doo-wop and, and that sort of yeah. thing. Also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were you, were you excited by the whole rock and roll revolution or was it more like, ah, oh, you know, absolutely. No, I was, I was a, uh, a British invasion freak. You know, I, I bought all of that stuff. I, I was so naive. I thought, I thought the British invented the blues. <laughs> I didn't know they were copying old, uh, you know, black blues masters, you know. I think that was true for a lot of people. The blues were going from, you know, the U.S. to England and then coming back in those British invasion records. And they're like, yeah, oh, you know, you, the, you, the Rolling Stones turning me on to, you know, Howlin' Wolf. Or absolutely. You know, uh, yeah, Little Red Rooster. Yeah. And and it was true. All the Clapton stuff. I mean, all of that, you know, was was basically based on American blues, even the early Fleetwood Mac. Right. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how even, you know, even bands that you don't think of as bluesy at all, like the Kinks and, mm. and, and you've done their 50th anniversary of uh, Village Green Preservation Society, which a box I, that I own. I did the whole box set. You know, their first record, they're sort of trying to be like an R&B group. And that's not right. their, you know, strong 
suit at all. And that's not what right. they turned into, but that was sort of the entry point for, you know, all of these bands, including the Beatles. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, they all were doing they, that. That was sort of what got them going was that American R and B as well as the rock and roll. Right. I was a Beatle freak, but I loved it all. I do want to get into how you got into mastering, but I'm going to ask you about that village green preservation society box. Cause that's a, that's a massive thing where it's got, you know, a couple different vinyl versions of it. And then uh-huh. it's got all these CDs and all of this extra material. And it's also material that I never thought was particularly recorded well. So tell me about like how you got into that. And also, was that exciting for you as someone who probably had heard it when it was coming out originally? Actually, no, I was not really that familiar with that record. I'd heard a couple of cuts from it, but it actually kind of flopped at the time. I should. should, Yeah, it did. It did. I mean, I, I knew the early kinks, you know, um, you know, all all the hit singles, uh, lazing on a Sunday afternoon, you know, all that stuff. And then, um lola of course you know because that was mastered at my old alma mater um by my mentor um nice so that was exciting um but yeah andrew sandoval who's the reissue producer for that stuff who was originally with rhino or at least that's what he's you know first known for um was was hired as the consultant on all of that for bmg and so he brought it to me and we've worked together for years and uh yeah it was it was just a blast working on all that stuff so but tell me about like the challenges of working with those recordings given how kind of muddy and muffled they some of them are it's not a real three-dimensional sounding record right yeah i don't know quite how to define that i mean you just kind of do a little bit of equalization to to make things sound clearer, um, yeah, kind of remove a little bit of the mud, add a little bit of the, the you know, sparkle, whatever, um, without making it sound harsh, which is a trick because those a lot of those pie tapes tend to sound a little t- tended to sound a little on our side. You know? What about the mono versus stereo for that one? Which do you think actually sounded better? Uh, that was one of the few, wasn't it? That that we did both a stereo and a mono because yeah. yeah, most of it was mono. Arthur came out as both also, but I felt like Arthur was really solidly in the stereo world. That's and true. I feel like I feel like Village Green Preservation Society's kind of it's even though it's like sixty eight, so most people were well into stereo by then too, like the Beatles. It's it's still. I don't know. Like the, the stereo is a little weird. It's like, it's more it kind of like the drums on one side kind of thing. Exactly. Well, I don't mind that so much, but I think I did like the mono mixes a little bit better on that record. I actually saw, an, a, a, now I'm really jumping around, but I saw another quote from you where, where you were talking about how the way stereo is balanced and that they'll sort of, you know, everything will be panned a certain way, this way or that way, but it ends up making it sound like the drums are like, two feet away from the keyboards or something like that. And you're talking about how, when you're actually in a live club, you know, the drums are going to be over here and the guitar is going to be over here and the saxophone or bass or whatever it is, is going to be over there. Do you, do you think that there's sort of a, been a sort of a fundamental misunderstanding of how stereo should be applied and that, that really, you know, to, you know, there should be more separation because that's what it sounds like if you're seeing it live. Well, okay. Uh, I think talking jazz and talking rock rock and roll pop you're kind of talking to apples and oranges um true jazz jazz in particular I, I i liked the early jazz where things were recorded with one microphone and panned to position so that it did sound the way it sounded in a club because you know that's where most people listen to jazz they'd go into a club um rock and roll is kind of a different thing and you know, panning drums so that, uh, you know, the fills go across, you know, from left to right on the speaker, you know, know, that's, that's fun. That's fine. But so I I kind of have a different mindset for jazz versus, you know, pop rock in that regard. Right. The the, the rock could be more of a sort of a, you know, made for your headphones kind of. Exactly. And, and um, yeah, it just, it kind of makes it more fun in that way, but you know, there's some great, great rock and roll, you know, everything up to about 68, Usually uh, the drums are on one or two tracks and they tend, you know, like all the door stuff, the drums are on one side or the other, Um, you know, but um, in stones too, you know, most, most of that, you know, pre pre 69 stones, you know, is that way. And yeah, those early Beatles record, like rubber soul, the original stereo is like, you could, you could basically do karaoke if you just turn on one turn off one side of it right right well that was what paul i think it was paul or george said that that's what they hated about stereo is that you know you could be sitting in somebody's apartment in front of one speaker and you're only hearing half the album (laughs) 
me this in the so you're in Los Angeles, right? Correct. Is there sort of a community of mastering engineers? Like, do you all kind of get together and share notes, or is it more of a is the is the atmosphere more that you sort of work on your own and do your own work? Uh, probably the latter. Although, um, whatever competition exists, it's friendly competition. Uh, you mentioned that you had done a podcast with Bernie. Uh, I consider Bernie a friend. He's He's a good guy. I've known him since 1969. So yeah, I find it interesting that that I feel like, and and you would be able to speak to this more than I could, that there is a growing awareness of who masters albums. I would guess when you're working on stuff in the 70s and 80s, there was not as much of an awareness of, oh, this is a Kevin Gray pressing. That's very true. Can you can you tell the difference between, you know, like one that you do versus one that Bernie Grunman does or Chris Bellman or Bob Ludwig or Ryan Smith or any of these other names? Um, th- there are certain earmarks that certain people have, but not always. I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a, a well-mastered record is a well-mastered record, you know, and I don't think I'm the only guy who can do that. So, <laughs> so is, is there any sort of philosophical, you know, differences between people? Like maybe some who are like, well, you have to be more, have more fidel, you know, be, be more loyal to the source recording and the other one, no, you want to make it sound as good as as possible. Well, it's a matter of what the client wants. You know, I, I some guys want it matched to the original and other people want me to do what I think, you know, make it sound the way I think it should sound. And I'm happy to do either one. You know, it's, it's it rarely is there a battle over how do we make this sound? I think the mastering is one of these areas, especially among more casual music fans, where they sort of hear the term, but they don't really quite understand it. What's your best sort of explanation for what you do and why you do it and what your philosophy is? OK, l- let me just explain something first. The, the term mastering has really changed from the time I got in the industry to what it is now, because uh, mastering used to just mean you put a tape on, you listen to it, you make some changes and you cut it. Well, then when the CD came along, things changed in that uh, now things are often pre-mastered for vinyl. And then I'm just cutting from a pre-mastered file. Um, I don't prefer to do that, but I'm asked to do that a lot. But to me, mastering is just, uh, I kind of equate it to photo uh, retouching. It's a matter of just trying to bring out the best aspects of, of a master tape um, and then transfer that to vinyl. So it's a matter of adjusting levels, equalization. I really am pretty much known for not limiting stuff unless it absolutely needs it. Um, and so it's just a matter of, of matching things up from track to track so that it flows nicely. So when you started, when you started, it was an all vinyl, all analog world. Then later you had to, you know, take these analog uh, recordings and, and master them for digital. And now I'm, I would guess that there's a lot of the opposite where there, there are these albums that have been recorded digitally. And they're like, you know what? We really need a great sounding vinyl copy. Uh-huh. That's true. So, so what is so like how is how is sort of the skill set different for each of those things and how's your job evolved over the years? Yeah, let, let me just mention that you know about going from digital to analog. I'm perfectly happy to do that for clients. Um, hopefully, it's high res digital, not cutting from a CD because I, I think that's kind of pointless to be honest. Um, right. But uh, I have two or three engineers who do a lot of pre mastering with various clients for vinyl. And uh, one in particular, uh, Joe Gastward, is very familiar. He used to cut records, so he knows what works and what doesn't work well on vinyl. And and he and I have worked out a method where when he masters for, say, a CD or even uh, high-res download or, or streaming, he'll do uh, a, two passes, one with the equalization he thinks it needs um, and a second one with the compression that they normally require for the digital stuff. So I get the first one that's not compressed. And that really, I think, sounds so much better translating to to vinyl. I've had my own business open now for just 10 years. And uh, I would say for the first half of that, I was getting probably 75% of the stuff on digital and, and 15, 20, 25% on analog. It varied a little bit. It's swung the other way now. I I'd probably 80% of the stuff that I'm doing now is from original analog tapes, you know, for, for reissue of, of uh, remastering of 
old titles um, and very little of it's from analog. So, you know, it used to be that I, I did a, you know, a lot of CD mastering. I'd hardly do any CD mastering anymore, uh, but I do high res for download and streaming on most of the titles that I do on vinyl. Does does AAA, which is keeping it all in the analog world, does that always sound the best or are there occasions where you're actually better off with a digital copy or something digital in there? Oh, that's a tough question. Well, um, normally I would say all, I would prefer all analog normally. Um, there have been some problems where a, a tape is deteriorated um, and they have an earlier digital transfer of it and that will sound better than the tape. But I think those are the exceptions, not the rule. And so, so your, your company is coherent H E A R. What's the balance between how important the equipment you have is versus the people who are running the equipment? Uh, it's very important. Uh, both both are very important. Um, one thing that that sets me and Bernie Grunman and uh, formerly Doug Sachs of the Mastering Lab and a few other people apart from the rest of the mastering community is that we've built all of our own equipment. Not every piece, but I mean, I've got a stock cutting head, um, but the electronics are all custom built as those guys also uh, in their systems did because we feel that we can do better than what the manufacturers of, of the disc cutting equipment were throwing out there for years and a lot of people are still using that stuff and that's fine for them but uh it's not what i would choose to do and and then as far as the individual it's a you know it's just uh having good monitor speakers and and being able to make some some decisions on how things should sound. So is the equipment that you put in there, is this all new stuff or is it a case where sometimes you're best off with these really, you know, old vintage, you know, tube vacuum, this, that, and the other thing that just is going to sound better than anything that's made today. Um, I have designed most of my own equipment, whether it be tube or solid state uh, in my mastering room, that equipment is all class a um, solid state, which is a way of operating the, the transistors so that uh, uh, basically they're always turned on. <laughs> I don't want to get into a big treatise on that for you, but but you can look up the difference between class A and class AB and class B. Anyway, um, it's it's the only mastering system of its kind, as far as I know, that's all class A from the tape head all the way through to the cutting head. Uh, and it's also transformerless. There's no audio transformers for doing matching and isolation. How long does it take to master an album? That varies a lot, but, you know, just round numbers, um, usually about two hours of rundown and then maybe an hour to cut it. So typically three hours. Um, if it's a problem record, it can take much longer. But So will you do like two a day? Like how many do you do a year? Yeah, I, I, I do about 300 titles a year. I only work Monday through Thursday because if I cut on Friday, the lacquers would sit over the weekend um, in shipping, and that's not good. It's it's always good to have the lacquers processed as quickly as possible. Huh. So uh, so I cut four days a week, uh, fifty weeks a year. Right. So okay. So so please tell me how you 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 got from you know music lover to you know someone who actually got into the mastering side of the business. Okay. Um, the short story is in in 1969. I was in my first year of high school. A guy moved into our neighborhood who owned a mastering facility. His name was Bob McLeod, and the 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 mastering place was Artisan Sound Recorders. And he took me down to to see the studio. And uh, I've I've been quoted on this before, but you know the, the the first time I saw him thread up a tape onto the gleaming Ampex machine and stick a lacquer on the Neumann lathe. And hit play, and you know, her, like hit, hit start on the lathe, then hit play, and it, it's transferring from 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 tape to disc. I knew at that moment that was what I wanted to do for a living. Up until meeting him, and up until that time, I figured I would probably wind up in radio because of my love for records and my love of electronics. Uh, I started dabbling in that when I was five years old. Also, so you know, I I. I Imagine myself not so much as a disc jockey, but maybe a radio engineer, you know, the guy who, you know, got tweaked up the transmitters and, and kept the, the, the music playing and on a radio station. But then right. when I discovered mastering, um, my, my world was set in concrete. Was there something just totally magic about the, the fact that this thing was being laid down on a disc and the grooves were in the disc and that you could play it? Because that's that's always sort of blown me away that the, you know, that the grooves are the, you know, actual it's the actual music sound right wave. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, it was, it was just, 
it was a, just a halcyon moment. It was like, wow, this is so cool. And you can get paid for doing this. You know, I can get paid for listening to music all day. Is <laughs> just kind of a cool thing. And you started working there, what, when you were 18, I think? Yeah, 72, right after I got out of high school. Uh, I had no desire to go to college. Uh, I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, four years of high school to me was a distraction. I mean, I got decent grades and everything, but I never had any interest in going to college past my second year of high school. So what were the first uh, projects that you worked on there at Artisan? Uh, Europe 72 by the Grateful Dead was the first you know, project I worked on, uh, you know, with clients. Now, OK, the way I got hired there, because um, they up until this time, they didn't really need a third engineer. Uh, Bob had already hired a guy named John Golden and he was working there. They, they hired him about six months before me. But they got this the CBS Records recut account. Um, which meant I was, you know, somebody had to come in and cut replacement lacquers for all this stuff. And so I got the job and I was coming in at three o'clock in the morning um, and cutting Santana, Chicago, Bob Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel, Blood, Sweat and Tears, you know, everything that was on CBS. And I thought I died and gone to heaven. You know, <laughs> it was just it was like the dream job. And uh, but then, you know, after about six months of doing that, Bob put me to work you know, working with clients. So, so did any of those CV, CBS artists come in and, you know, want to hear? No, your... no, because these are just recuts. They were, they were the replacement yeah. lacquers for records okay. that were already out there and the pressing plant needed new stampers or something. You know? So you didn't have Dylan sitting there going, what's no. that EQ? No, no, no. Um, I worked with a few, you know, when the Grateful Dead did a project, they all came in or pretty much all um, and, and, you know, their engineering team and, and everything else. Um, Billy Joel came in when we did Piano Man, but he just basically laid on the couch and didn't have much to say. Um, there are a few other people like that, you know, who, who would come in on mastering sessions. Did you have people who would sort of backseat engineer a little bit and say, you know what, I think you need to boost this or I need more bass. It wouldn't be the star. You know, it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the artist. It would be the producer or the engineer. And did that happen sometimes? Oh, sure. Like, yeah. Did you like lock horns with some, you know, no. Roy Halley or whoever else would be? No, no. Never worked with Roy. But uh, yeah, it, it was the engineer who was basically trying to get me to correct things that he didn't quite get right in the mix. So I might have some suggestions. He might have some suggestions and we'd usually, you know, arrive at a compromise. In general, is it easier to master a well-recorded, you know, tape as opposed to one? Oh, that's... sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Some, some projects, I won't mention any names, but some projects required a lot of work to get them sounding decent. And um, <laughs> it's funny that, I think the ones that I put the most work in on were probably the ones that I didn't get credit for. When, when you had to do a lot of work on a recording, would you have to consult all along the way? I'm doing this, this, and this, or were you just like, nah, my job is just to make this sound better it because it really I doesn't mean, sound good. Sometimes the project was just sent in to me. Other times the producer or the engineer or both would come in with it. So these were, so these were new, you know, albums that were coming out. Were there, were there any that, that you were, intimidated by like you're like oh like oh wait a minute i really have to get this right because there's a lot of pressure on this this is going to sell 20 million copies <laughs> um i don't remember kind of having those fears you know um no i, I mean <laughs> i'll tell you the album that was one of my favorite that i've ever worked on and this was a reissue i got to do the i guess it was the 30th anniversary reissue of dark side of the moon which okay. i always considered an iconic record i mean i i'll never forget you know when when i put started the tape up and hit play and heard the heartbeats at the beginning it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck you know and uh i i felt a little bit of pressure and then i was working with doug Sachs. we we co did that because he had already stopped cutting vinyl at that point he, he wound up putting the equipment back in when he moved up to M, to uh ohio later on but at that time he wasn't cutting records so he brought it to me and so we collaborated on that and um but there, I, we we both knew that there were other reissues of the record already out there mobile fidelity had done one other people had done one so right. we kind of you know felt like we had to beat what they were doing so yeah there was a bit of pressure on that so 30th anniversary of that would have been 2003 that's right. Where you're, where you're pretty much in the digital era. Was that mostly a CD project or was there? No, no, no. We were vinyl? getting it on vinyl from the original master tape. I should, I should find that. Yeah, it's out there. It's uh, it was pressed in Europe. I think Palace pressed it. 
look on Discogs, it'll probably be like $300 yeah. or something like that. I do have those original Mobile Fidelity, one of that. That was like one of the ones where you're, you know, like I'm in high school and you're like, oh, you know, that and uh, Crime of the Century, Super Tramp. And- I absolutely love that record. Now, I don't know if he was pulling my leg or not, but when I met Ken Scott, and had a chance to talk to him about some of the great stuff that he did, starting with the Beatles and and uh, you know uh, David Bowie, and then we touched on Supertramp. I said, you know, when I was hanging out in stereo stores, even after I was mastering in the mid seventies, I said that was a demo record in every stereo store I went into, and he was like, "Really, Supertramp? Really?" I mean, I would have thought he knew, you know. You did Remain in Light, which is another great one, but um... yeah, I, I did the uh, I did the uh, Oh, Elvis Costello. I did the one with Allison. I did the. Re- oh, my aim is true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, the first one. Did right. you did you do the original version of that? No, no. But I did a reissue on it back in the mid two thousands. Got it. And of course, you'd always turn up Dark Side of the Moon too, because when like the the all the alarm clocks would start yeah. ringing, you'd be like, "Whoa!" You know? <laughs> that was a tricky thing to cut. So, so like, how does how does one know? which like version of dark side of the moon to buy at this point. It's hard to tell. Sometimes they don't always sticker them. You know, I think that did have a 30th anniversary sticker on it. And uh, so that one, that that's the one way you could tell it once it's been opened up and the, and the shrink wraps thrown away. I'm not sure you could tell without, you know, looking at the dead wax and finding a KPG at ATM on that one. It would have been interesting. And then, yeah. And then they re-released them recently, but I think those are also remastered. I don't know if they were remixed or just remastered. And Bernie Grunman was involved in them. I think James Guthrie and, Uh and and those have had, you know, like mixed reviews on, you know, whether people like that or not as well, guys, because everyone has opinions on this stuff. Right. Do you get a lot of feedback, by the way, from people saying, oh, I, I loved your cut of this or, oh, you know, too much mid-range? <laughs> they, they mostly tend to be complimentary. I, I get emails from people. Yeah, they, they find my email and, you know, I have a continual ongoing dialogue with a guy in Germany who uh, is a fan. Is there is there a characteristic of your work that people tend to pull out, like something that distinguishes it Um you know, beyond, you know, for, that makes it different again from, from those other, you know, engineers we were talking about earlier. Um, I, 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 I kind of tend to go for smooth, but without sucking out mid range, which a few mastering guys do thinking they're making it sound more high fidelity. But, um, anyway, I, 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 I try to make it sound smooth and balanced, you know, just got enough bass, got enough mid range, got enough treble, you know, without being specific about the instruments, because I, I can't really pull the piano out or pull the vocal out. It's, it has to be a kind of a wider band thing. Right. Is that, is that the sort of quote unquote mistake you, you hear maybe the most on, you know, other, other records you hear that have been remastered where, where maybe just one element is sort of put out of whack because people think, Oh, you know, if you have like tons more bass, people are going to think it's clearer or something like that. Yeah. I don't think those guys stay around for very long, but I've, I've heard a few try that technique and, um, Sure doesn't work for me. Yeah, but that's that seems. To, I I'm, I keep fixate, fixating on the bass, but I feel like that's the thing where, when when there's a remastered something, it'll be like, does the bass like suddenly jump out of the speaker, or does it sound really clear, or is it buried? But well, that, it's 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 sort of the secret like litmus test or something. Yeah. Well, one interesting thing is that you know the music that was mixed in the '60s, even if it was going on on 12 inch LP vinyl a lot of the mixes were done for radio. And so they usually would like roll off the low bass and they would add mid range, mostly mid range, sometimes top end also to make it, you know, really come across great on the radio. And uh, finally, by the early seventies, we've gotten out of that thing, but you know, you, you find that you generally have to undo a little bit of that when you put it out for a reissue, because that's not going to sound good on somebody's stereo, decent sounding, you know, stereo today, forget the audiophile, even just a good sounding stereo. And that ain't going to sound great today. Yeah. I think, I feel like one of the things that happened with the CD era was that loudness got became more of a, an issue and, and people sort of thought that everything needed to sound louder. And then finally there was a backlash about against that saying, you know, this stuff is all mastered too loudly and, you know, it becomes hard to listen to, you know, for a whole, you know, CDs worth of music because it's just kind of, it's just something that kind of grates on your ears when it's turned up like, like that. Yeah, I, I haven't bought a CD since 1995 because that's 
basically in my book where the loudness wars got started. There were two guys on the West Coast and two guys on the East Coast who shall remain nameless, who got into a big war on who could make the loudest sounding CD, which is just absolutely absurd. What does that have to do with music? Nothing. It's anti-music as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, that's always been a pet peeve of mine. And, you know, there was a time in the mid 90s where I actually thought about getting out of the music industry and going and selling real estate or something because I was getting sick of having to compress, hearing everything so compressed and having to compress stuff for people. Yeah. yeah, the loudness thing I never understood because it's like that's you have this volume knob and it, it really lets me listen to music well, louder. Maybe you than can like explain my... that to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my daughter always asked me to turn it down, even if it's a very well mastered and balanced recording, because that's because that's just because me realistically too loud, too loud, but it's not because the recording's too harsh. Right. No, it, um, the problem is. What a lot of people don't realize is, is we've lost the, the loudness war. The loudness war is now, I mean, well, it's not a war anymore. It's just everything's compressed now because that set a precedent that, you know, it started out with 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 CD changers, you know, um, in, in every record company executive office, they'd have a CD changer. And when you submitted a record, they'd compare your mastering of your record to every other record in their seat. If it didn't sound as loud, it went oh. back to you for more compression. So they and have like the it, little the little carousel of all the different right, records. Right. And then and then it was the iPod. And then it was, you know, whatever personal playback device you have in your phone, whatever. Everything has to sound at the same volume. You know, you don't want to have to turn up one record because it's way lower than everything else. And it's generally about 6 dB of digital compression on everything out there today, you know, including the old stuff. They're even doing it to the old stuff. But even is that true with all the vinyl reissues? No, because it seems like it seems like there's this sort of like here's a word I don't get to use much. This bifurcated thing going on where you have all these people who are listening on their, you know, AirPods. Right. um, But then you also have this surge in vinyl sales and turntable sales and people wanting to hear the stuff as it's meant to sound with the analog. And there's more kind of conversation about we don't want all that compression and we don't want all those digital steps. Right. No, that to me, that's one of the reasons for buying vinyl, you know, unless it's cut from a, from a compressed digital file, which sometimes happens, but, you know, especially on the stuff that I'm cutting from analog tape, um, there's generally very little or no compression on it. And that's the only way you can hear that nowadays. So I, I think that's another one of the reasons that vinyls become very popular again. So this should be a good era for you and coherent, right? I mean, this is like <laughs> you and your business, I would I, hope. I, I'm busier than I've ever been, um, which, you know, every year I, my sales are up from the year before, which is just except for 2020 with the pandemic. But but even last year was a really good year. And this year has been amazing for the first month. How do you listen to music at home? Uh, I listen to vinyl a lot. I, I tend to listen to the radio. I'm lazy. <laughs> I li- LA has a, a pretty decent jazz station and a pretty decent classical station. And uh, I kind of unwind to that. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I don't, I very list, seldom put on a CD. I usually put on vinyl if I want to listen to something uh, that I'm really serious about. You're not using streaming services? Not at all. I've never streamed. I've never downloaded. I just don't have any desire to. And do you have like very high end, you know, equipment like these, you know, I have the same monitor system in the house that I have in the studio because I built both of them. So, yeah. And, you know, I have have a Technics uh, SB10 Mark III turntable with an SME arm. And um, yeah, so. And, and custom bill phono pre. Since we moved into your uh, your your home, I'm going to jump ahead to your living room. Um, I want to hear more about this Hackensack West. <laughs> okay. And uh, you're going to be recording jazz there. Yes, that's correct. Okay, okay. That's not that's not the living room at my house here. That's actually the living room at the house where I have the mastering studio, okay. uh, which is my old house, and my son lives there. He's renting from me. Um, and yeah, that's where I built what's come to be known as Hackensack West. <laughs> I call it, it's officially coherent recording, but. So, so the mastering studio is actually in a house. It's actually in, in the garage. I converted the garage into a really nice mastering room. What part of LA is that in, by the way? San Fernando Valley. Okay. Yeah. So, so the living room of this house you've, you've realized has the similar 
qualities to where all these blue note recordings were done in the, Hackensack, New Jersey. The early ones. Yeah. The, the ones, you know, Rudy, Rudy, uh, I think built that in like the late forties and started doing all of the blue note stuff like in 52, I think, and uh, worked there until mid 59 and then opened his studio in Inglewood Cliffs. But some of my favorite blue, blue notes and prestiges were done in that room there in Hackensack, New Jersey. So have you started doing this yet and recording? Oh, yeah. Uh, we've recorded the first album. It's not out yet because the pressing plants are taking eight months to press. Um, but it'll be out. get to that, too. Yeah, it'll be out hopefully midsummer. So what, uh, what what project is that? It's a girl named Kirsten Edkins. She's a sax player. Yeah. And, and we got Gerald Clayton uh, kind of as our ringer to play uh, piano on it. He's he's a blue note artist and absolutely phenomenal. He's he's young guy relatively he's in his i guess early 30s but uh he's he's kind of the up-and-coming guy on the scene he came off of a european tour in in november and then went back the first two weeks of january so so you're producing and engineering these sessions yourself uh i had a producer on this project it, uh, it was the guy who actually suggested kirsten to me because he's worked with her before and his name's dave connor and he produced i engineered and and i actually co-engineered it with another friend of mine uh guy named ryan worthlin have you have you engineered a lot of live recordings over the years? Huh. Back in the from the 80s through the 90s and up through the early 2000s, I did a lot of recording for the L.A. Jewish Symphony. And uh, that's where I actually got to test out the tube microphones when I built them and my tube mixer. So, huh. um, yeah, it was very cool. Did you like that aspect of it or do you still just prefer the, you know? Oh, no, I, it, I, I like them pretty much equally. I, I like doing live recording and and studio recording. So, what's your hope with this Hackensack West? Are you are you, are you going to try to make this a you know full year recording studio? Then it's basically for me. I mean, I'm I am willing to do outside projects as long as they have the understanding. Well, if they're not interested in going to vinyl, I'm not interested in doing it for them. And the agreement would be prior to recording for them that I do the whole project all the way through uh, to cutting the lacquers. Right. I don't know why someone wouldn't want you to do that. Well, like you know, they might you know, you make, make some nice MP3s for me. You'd be surprised at the requests you get from people. So I, I just make it clear that up front, this is what it's all about. So it's so it's kind of a passion project for you. It is. It is. It's something I've wanted to do for years. And as I explained in that article, uh, I, I've been looking for two years for a place to record because I, I got the equipment finished actually in, in 2020. And uh, and I was looking for a place to record. And, you know, I was I was talking to various studios about using their space, but bringing all of my gear in everything from the microphones, you know, to the mixer tape machine. Um, and and then I this guy named Rich Capeless did his site on Rudy Van Gelder. It's called RVGlegacy.org. And uh, he sent me the link to it. We had talked for years about collecting blue notes and so forth. And uh, I was blown away when I saw it. And then when I saw the layout of the room and I went, my God, that's almost the same size as my living room. So huh. it, the wheels started turning and it, it took us about four months of, of acoustic treatment and so forth. And, you know, we, it was amazing. I'm sitting with the producer and, and my co-engineer um, had just set up the microphones over the drums, piano, everything sat down. My mastering room is actually the de facto control room when, when we're recording. And so yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah. I'm using the same loudspeakers and everything. And so I opened up the pots and the producer standing behind my left shoulder says, my God, it sounds like a blue note. And I said, well, that was the idea, but you're right. Yeah, it does. <laughs> well, it's, it's one thing to sort of think it in theory and the other thing to actually hear that sound coming out, that must've been pretty thrilling. I would guess. It was, it absolutely was. How much of your work now is remastering old albums versus mastering new material? Oh, uh, it's probably 85% old, 15% new. I'm, I'm doing, it's interesting because I, I did Gerald Clayton's new album. I did um, Charles Lloyd's new album. Some other, I'm, I'm doing some other Blue Note, front, what they call Frontline, which are the new releases. Um, uh, Julian Lodge. Um, there's, there's a, I, I can't even think off the top of my head, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing a lot of Blue Note new stuff and, nice. uh, I, and, and, and some stuff for other labels too. So if you're mastering about 300 albums a year, does it does it matter to you? I mean, obviously, you're not going to really love all of them. Does it does it matter to you? Like, if you think something's great or something's kind of awful, 
My taste in music is so broad. I rarely get an album that I hate. I mean, rarely. And I don't even get that many albums that I don't like, you know, or, or don't don't feel excited about. I mean, I, I like most of the projects that I work on. And I've gotten to the point now where I kind of pick and choose. You know, I figure I've been doing this long enough. At this point, I'm not even taking new clients. And I basically have have five labels that I'm doing work for. And, and that's keeping me just incredibly busy. Have you had any that you've rejected either because of the way it was recorded or just because you found it just like offensive music that you just didn't want to have anything to do with. No, I haven't. And, um, I haven't had people bring me stuff like that. I mean, I kicked one client to the curb because they were quote unquote pre-mastering their stuff and it sounded horrible. And then when I would try to charge them for fixing it, they'd get all upset about it. And I said, I think it's time for you to move on. (laughs) But it happens so rarely. If they don't understand what you're doing, then that's clearly they don't. <laughs> so you did a 2017 Electric Warrior by T-Rex, which mm-hmm. I got. Mm-hmm. Sounds fantastic. And that came out. Uh, that was from the original Analog Master. It says right, so that was right for Warner Rhino. Sticker. Yeah. And then 2020, there's a MoFi 45 RPM uh-huh. of the same album. So it's two records. I haven't heard it. RPM, Mobile Fidelity and you. Do you have different approaches or? Yeah, I'm not a big believer in, in half speed. I, I don't like what it does to the sound. I don't think it improves it. I think it degrades it. Um, I wrote a paper about that a long time ago. I'm not sure if you can find it on the internet, but I, uh, you know, it, it has problems at both the low end and the high end, the low end, because you're cutting all the frequencies in half. And so you're asking the system to really do something it wasn't designed to do on the low end. You're going to lose bass and it tends to get kind of a little wallowy sounding and, and boomy. I don't know how else to describe it on the top end, things like vocal sibilance, really need to be high frequency limited in cutting to keep it so that it'll play back uh, cleanly. It's not a cutting problem. It's a playback problem. When you cut half speed, it doesn't improve that in any way. You're still cutting the same shape groove and the shape has to physically be modified if you want it to play back cleanly uh, with a phonograph cartridge. So that can be addressed digitally. If it's cut from a digital master, they can correct for that. If it's cut from an analog master, there is no way to correct for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me because, because half speed at master has a, well, you're getting twice as much detail because you're doing it on half speed or you do also, you do your plane into 45. That, that's the fallacy. <laughs> you got the, you got the, 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 um, you know, 45. So you, you have more, you know, information in those groups. It was interesting. Bernie Grunman said, this is, this is on a separate topic. He, he said that the reason off the wall sounds better than thriller was that off the wall was cut on quarter inch tape and thriller was on half inch tape. And he actually thinks the quarter inch sounds better. He's and right. It seems totally con- counterintuitive. Nope. He's right. All right why problem, is that? It's a problem called gap scatter. Um, there's, there's a gap in the playback head uh, between the two poles Uh, And basically, that's what sort of creates the reproduction of the sound wave as it goes across. And the wider you make that head with an individual track, the more there's an alignment problem. You can't make it perfect. It can't be perfect. And then the wider you make the track, one inch is even worse. You know, for, for like a decade there, everybody got the idea that, oh, yeah, we'll go one inch, two track. Oh, man. Um, It's even worse with that. So. Hello. <laughs> no, I, I agree with Bernie completely. It's funny because I've never had that conversation. I didn't know he was telling people that, but he's right. Yeah, no, we were, we were, yeah, we were getting into it. We were talking about the sound of those two records together. And he's like, yeah, off the wall sounds better. And this is one of the, the main reason is this. And I thought that was really interesting and well, not an, something I would have guessed. An engineer named Alan Sides, um, who uh, used to own Oceanway Recording, all of the various Oceanway Studios. There were several at one point. He's now sort of semi-retired, but building loudspeaker systems. Anyway, Alan and I had a discussion about that. When Half Inch first started going, he, he asked me, he said, have you ever A-B'd a half inch machine to a quarter inch machine in the studio? And I said, no, I've never really had that opportunity. He goes, guess what? The quarter inch sounds better. Huh. So there's a limited number of people who are aware of this. Well, there, there will be more now. So <laughs> they're getting it reinforced. If they listen to Bernie, then you, they're going to be like, okay, 
the, the masters have spoken, so to speak. I'm probably damaging myself by saying that because people say, you know, what should I send you as a copy of the master tape if I can't get the master tape? And I tell them half inch 30 IPS because that's what most people are doing. That a lot of people have half inch machines and don't even have quarter inch anymore. Uh, since the 80s, half inch has become such a big thing. I just tell them that, you know, I, I don't get into, well, if they have a quarter inch machine, have you know, maybe I'll start doing that. Anyway, <laughs> right. There, there are a lot of versions of uh, Fleetwood Mac's rumors out there now. I think I saw your name and Steve Hoffman's together on a two, a double record at 45 RPM. Uh -huh. um, I, I think it was cut a while ago. Is that something oh, where yeah. the two of you collaborated or was that just well, like Steve Hoffman where... and I used to work on a lot of stuff together. People would hire him as a consultant. Um, long story. But yeah, we, we, we did that back in, uh, I think it was 2005. That was when Warner jumped back into vinyl. And, uh, but they weren't even calling it that. Uh, that was a guy named Tom Berry, who was a VP there and a huge vinyl collector and loved vinyl. And, and he just said, you know what, we're just going to put these records back in the catalog. And so we did a whole series. We did Fleetwood Mac rumors. We did a couple James Taylor's. We did a couple Van Morrison's, a number of things, Joni Mitchell. Uh, so it was all Warner Electra Atlantic stuff. And, uh, and then they jumped into it big time. You know, Rhino became the, the vinyl wing. Of, right. And, you know, Warner. Yeah. Rhino used to be like all the cool little, you know, compilations and stuff. And now it's like every Warner record is, you know, all the Joni Mitchell is on Rhino. Yeah. Yeah. That. Rhino has become the vinyl release wing of, of, uh, WMG as it's called Warner music group. Do you have any sense of whether that's the rumors to get or, cause I know there are a bunch of them that have come since then too. I have, a box that has a bunch of CDs and a Blu-ray in there and a DVD of, and then vinyl, I think 180 gram vinyl, but I'm not, I'm not sure which cut that one is, but it's not 30, it's not 45 RPM. Uh, again, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot for saying this, but Steve did some things on rumors that I wasn't that happy with. Um, I think the original, which was cut by Ken Perry at Capitol, is pretty hard to beat, in all honesty. It sounded great. I still um, have that one. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not knocking the one that I did. Uh, I've gotten a lot of compliments on it. A lot of people seem to love it. Um, I'm probably nitpicking because it's just on a couple of tracks. There were some things that I would have done differently, but whatever. Now, is um, that is that like an EQ thing, a compression mm -hmm. thing? As a... Oh, not compression, for sure. There was no compression. It was yeah, an EQ thing. Not. It was an EQ thing. Yeah. Got it. Um. Also, you did the John Prine. I bought this one as well. The John Prine self-titled debut in 2020. I did because uh, I never John owned Prince, it. I think. Yeah, I think you did those. For, was it the first three albums? I know that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they came out with. They came out with first. They came out in a box of the first four for Record Store Day, and then they sold them separately, and I got them separately. Okay. Um, and then Vinyl Me Please had a version 2021, which I don't think was your cut. No, it's funny. I do a lot of work for VMP. They they can't seem to make up their mind who they want to use or why. So I I don't know, but I've I've done a lot of their reissues. But I yeah, I, I didn't I I didn't get that one because I already had yours and it sounded uh, great. I'm like, well, I don't really need you know the colored vinyl version if it's not the you know. Yeah, I wonder if they got the original master tape and all that good stuff because uh, I did <laughs> because it came from Warner. You know, how much stuff do you do for VMP now? I definitely have a bunch of them. I haven't done that much recently, but uh, over the last couple of years, well, you know, maybe 2019, maybe 2021, I was still doing some of their stuff. Haven't, haven't seen any titles from them lately. I know I, I, I recently sort of went back and picked up the, that first Mavis Staples solo album and you did that one. And I was yeah. kind of, I was kind of dragging my heels on getting that one. Cause I thought, ah, you know, people don't seem to think this is so great, but then I got, it, I was like, Oh, it's Mavis Staples and stacks. What could be bad? And it sounds really good. Yeah. I, lo I love Mavis Staples and I love the Staples singers. Um, I, you know, I got to work on that, their big album too, which was, uh, just amazing. So that's, Oh, was that originally when when that one came out? The one with respect yourself and yeah, uh, and the, right. When, but I did the, the it was a reissue, probably in the early two thousands. And uh, man, I put up the tape and hit play, and it it just it it floored me. It sounded so good. Dun, 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 you know, just whoa. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Know? And then I found this. And then I found this uh, reggae song, the Liquidator, and it's it's the same intro. It's from a few years earlier, but uh, it doesn't sound ample. as good as it, 
it's not in a sample. It's a, like the, the, um, I'll take you there. Al Bell, I think sort of, I, I don't want to say borrowed, but, but he kind of oh. was certainly inspired okay. to yeah, the exact same, uh, opening of this, uh, the, the liquidator as uh-huh. appears two years later on. I'll take you there, but okay. I'll take you there. is still a fantastic. I, I gotta say, since you touched um, on it, I absolutely love stacks. It's one of my favorite labels. Um, you know, the, the, Booker T and the MGs and, and, uh, and I, I got to work with, uh, uh, Steve Cropper and duck Dunn back in the mid seventies, not on that stuff, but on stuff that, that, uh, they were recording and playing on, but, um, but yeah, all, all of that, you know, Otis Redding, I mean, it, it just goes on and on. You know? I've deep dived more into kind of that era soul since the pandemic hit than just about anything else that the stacks, which I always was into, and then sort of moving through the seventies and finding, you know, other, other artists who I didn't really listen to as much, but mm-hmm. the sound wise also, it just sounds fantastic. And I know Kraft has done a lot of these triple a re-releases of that catalog uh, as well. Yeah. I've done a lot of stuff for them. Um, they're one of, one of the five labels that I'm still working for a lot. Who do you do the most for at this point? And, and universal by a wide margin. They're my biggest client. Cause I do so much blue note stuff. I'm doing both the tone poet series and the classics series. So just, just those two things keep me fairly busy. So is there anything in particular you do to protect your ears? Not, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I just, I don't monitor really loudly when I cut or record. I'm just, I, I never have. And that's probably been a real big blessing, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I, I've been around World War II airplanes. That was, a, you know, a hobby for a while. I always wore hearing protection when I was around those. Um, I haven't been shooting in years. I used to go shooting and always wore hearing protection for that. So, you know, I, I've, I've worked to protect my ears, but I don't, I don't obsess over it. Did you go back when it wasn't so fraught? Were you going to a lot of live concerts? Always wore hearing protection there, too. Always. Uh, but yeah, I used to, I haven't really gone to live. I mean, I, I go to small clubs, but I haven't really gone to big concerts since like the late seventies, I guess. Yeah. I saw the grateful dead four times. Never got to see the wall of sound though. That would have been fun. Do you ever hear an album and think, Oh, I would really love to get my hands on that one. Yeah. That would uh, include all of the Rolling Stones catalog and all of the Beatles catalog, (laughs) but which I've never worked on. I know I've done stuff for the who I've done stuff for like the kinks, a lot of British invasion stuff, but never, never stones or, uh, or Beatles. Do you think those two catalogs are particularly wanting in better mastering? I think that I could bring something to the table on both. Uh, I'm not going to criticize what they've done with it. I mean, there have been some reissues of both that have sounded very, very good. So, I mean, I, I would not have taken the approach with the Beatles that they did of well, you know, the whole thing's been remixed now, but I, I wouldn't have, have, uh, you know, done, done the stuff from digital files with the added compression that they did. Right. Uh, I, I have a problem with that, but you know, I, I actually thought the original CDs, other than the fact that the A to D converters were terrible back then sounded better than a lot of the stuff that they've reissued on vinyl. Yeah. They, they had the original CDs and then they all came out again, I think 2009 maybe. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then you had the whole stereo box and vinyl, but right. those were done from digital sources. I know. And I then know. you had the mono box, which was done from the analog and the mono box blows away the stereo box. I'm not surprised. I don't own either one. You know, a funny thing happened in 1982 or three, right around the time everything was coming out on CD Costco. I don't know if you have, do you have Costco's back there? Oh yeah. 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 Okay. Costco. I've been a member since it was the price club. People didn't even remember that, but uh, Costco uh, put out the um, the original Parlophone box sets, mono and stereo. Um, they were like sixty five bucks for the wow ten albums, nine albums, ten albums. I think it was ten because uh, it, it, there was a um, kind of a compilation. But anyway, um, they were from the original Stampers, pressed in Germany or Holland, and they sounded phenomenal. I mean, to me, that's my go-to when I want to play the Beatles. That's what I put on. Those are re- Were those reissues or were those? It was things? a reissue because it had never been. They call it the blue box and the red box. I don't know if you've seen those. 
Um, right. From the oh, yeah, I, have, I have seen those. Yeah. I've seen them for like 1500 bucks on eBay, which is insane. I, right. I wish I did. If, if I had a crystal ball, I would have bought 10 of them, you know, for 65 <laughs> bucks. And I didn't buy the mono box and I wish I had. Yeah. That one, you, that one, you, it's hard to find for like less than a thousand bucks. Also that one in yeah. the mobile fidelity box, but the mobile fidelity one, you know, I had the mobile fidelity box and I gave it away. I mean, gave it away. <laughs> wow. Now I gave it to a friend who was a big Beatles freak. Oh, and, good. That was a nice thing to do. Yeah. But I wasn't that impressed with it. We did a, um, I, I went to a local uh, stereo store that had really fantastic equipment and we did sort of a blind hearing test among the mobile fidelity. And, you know, I think when the new records came out and then the original records and mobile fidelity did not win, you know, consistently it was, it was, they won some of them. It was hitting. Yeah, some... I agree. There were, there were two or three albums and I couldn't even tell you now which one I think rubber soul was one that I thought sounded great. But but not all of them did. Not 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 all of them did in any of them. So maybe that's why you need to come in and get those original analog masters because because whatever whichever source you were you were using was a mixed bag. It got some victories and some you know. Yeah, I would I would definitely lobby for that. Now I guess all of the original two tracks do not exist according to my information. I don't know oh. if you've heard that. It's two or three albums. No. The tapes have disappeared on over the years. Sergeant Pepper. Well, that's no good. Sergeant Pepper being oh, one of them. <laughs> really? Yeah. I would think they would keep that stuff under, you know, guarded, you know, they'd, they'd have someone full time standing with, you know, outside the vault for that one. You would think, but that was not the case in the like 80s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. The Stone stuff was never recorded quite as well. No. Although there are some great sounding albums, you know, my, my favorite Stones album, because it was mastered at my old alma mater, was uh, Let It Bleed, you know, and I think that's a oh, yeah. That's a great sounding record. Yeah, yeah. no, that for that, that little beggar, the beggar's banquet through, yes. you know, those, the, the, those the Jimmy, the Jimmy Miller were, era. Yes. And the grungy sound of, of exile works for that album. Too, it does. Right? It does. I like that album and sticky fingers, you know, that's a great sounding record. Yeah. Uh, I worked with Jimmy Miller in the mid seventies. I knew who he was, of course. Um, and, but it was interesting because a friend of mine said, did he have an English accent? And it's like, not that I recall. It turns out he's from New Jersey. I didn't know that. I'm not sure how he connected up with the Stones, but he was not. There was a, a lot of that going on. I, I interviewed Shel Talmy for this. Speaking of early kinks. Oh, I'd love to talk to him. He was born in Chicago. Yeah. He was a Chicago guy, and he lives in LA. You could, you guys could get together. He probably lives down the street from you. I would love to. That would be awesome. All right, that'll be. We'll do a. We'll do a follow up special episode where I'll get you and Shel Talmy together, and you could. Ask I would love other. that. That'd be so fun. All right. I'm actually going to try to make this happen at some point. Awesome. Um, I'm hoping right, you well, do it, Mark. Please do. No, remind me if I don't. <laughs> but yeah, I will. I will check him. He he did the Zoom and everything. It was great. So, um, so I'll we will have, have that. I put out sort of a question in some of these Facebook Reddit communities, uh, asking if there's anything they wanted me to ask you. And I'm just going to bounce a couple of these off. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Okay. <laughs> one. For mono records, he mastered. If he recommends using a mono cartridge or the if the mono switch on my amplifier will suffice. The mono switch on your amplifier will suffice. I don't know if I even have a mono switch on my amplifier. Is that bad? Or, or on the preamp. It's usually on the preamp. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. A lot of the new ones don't have that. Um, I guess you could use a Y connector or something like that. But. Does he go into a remaster with a clear mind to EQ the tracks to what he personally finds best? Or does he reference previous pressings to try and remain faithful? I've heard mastering engineers say they do one or a combination of both. A uh, combination of both. I mean, I, I like to always, always have an original pressing when I'm doing a reissue to hear what was done. Um, Cause I want to hear what the intent was. And I can only derive that if I don't, if I'm not working with the producer by listening to the original release, but occasionally I will make minor changes from there. And it's like that stuff I was telling you about where they'd add so much mid range back in the sixties to make right. it sound good on radio. You don't need that anymore. Absolutely. Okay. This one, I don't even know, but I'm going to pass it on anyway, because it'll make one person very happy to have it answered. Okay. Uh, I want to know if the, um, the, the Japanese disc union uh, from the original master series tapes you cut is triple a. Okay. I have been under lock and key from the labels since like mid 2000s. <laughs> I'm not allowed to reveal sources. I'm not allowed to reveal sources. Is that true? It's true. So when, so, so it's up to a label when they say this is triple a or whatever, but you, you, it cannot... is now, if they make an issue about it, then I can talk about it all you want. But if they don't say one way or the other, um, let me just put it this way. Usually if it's all analog, it's going to be stickered that way. Right. 
And let the buyer beware. There, there you go. What's better to get like a high res digital file or, you know, maybe a later generation analog file that's not the original master? Uh, you're talking about for source material? Yes. Or- yeah. So like if you're mastering something, they say, here, master this, they could either give you like, here's this high res digital thing we did uh, from the original master, or here's this, you know, third generation. It's the only thing we got. We don't know where the originals are. Oh boy. Um, that's a tough one. I mean, usually I think the digital is going to beat it. My problem with sending me a digital copy is I don't know what kind of A to D converter they use. And uh, you know, th- there are some nasty sounding A to D converters out there to this day. So just because they're 24 bit doesn't mean they're great. So, um, but a third generation analog is not going to sound very good. So it's (laughs) probably apples and oranges, you know, (laughs) aside from, you know, the stuff that you have to do with, you know, CDs and stuff, does digital technology help you in your job right now? You know, you're talking about in cutting Vinyl, yeah, just is your yeah your main you know. Well, I'm you know I am doing a lot of stuff from high res digital, and so yes, I'm using uh, Sonic Solutions Workstation for doing that. And does it help me? Yeah, um, it's easy to do little things like fades and that sort of thing, and um, you know, and have it on the file, uh, and to make level changes even. Um, so yes, it helps me. It helps me. But I think I'd always prefer to cut it from the original analog if I can, or if there, if there is one. Absolutely. A, a recent guest I had on as well as uh, Steve Albini, who uh, records here and cuts everything to analog tape as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. So. I've, I've, I've done some cutting of his work and we've, we've uh, had a couple of conversations a long time back, but yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm a fan of Steve's work. Interesting. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. I really appreciate uh, having you on here and I learned a lot and I'm sure people who listen to this will as well. And and I'm going to like go on to Discogs now and find those like that 2003 uh, Dark Side of the Moon and and some of these other things. And and then I'll, I'll swing back with Shel Talmy and we'll all... Okay. Well, I'll, I'll get out to LA sometime and we'll have uh, coffee and I'll uh, just put the recorder on or something. All or right. I'll just, I'll figure out a way to hook you guys up on Zoom, but that would be fun. Right. Well, to answer you, you're welcome. And I had a good time. It was fun. That's all for episode 20 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Kevin Gray for opening our ears to so many details about mastering. If you'd like to learn more, go to the Coherent Audio website, Coherent, C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-T dot com. And be sure to look for the KPG in an album's dead wax to know you're listening to a Kevin Gray mastering job. They do sound terrific. Thanks to the Carol Pop team, including web developer Marty Rosenbaum and Lou Carlozo, who recorded the catchy Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's got a high EQ IQ. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks.